Real estate is the most consistent wealth builder out there. Whether or not you do short-term rentals, get your feet in real estate and be in it for the long-term. I done a lot of research, done a lot of numbers, and there are very few more tried and true, trusted ways to build wealth. Get into real estate one way or the other, hold some equity and hold it long-term and you'll be fine. Everybody wanna get the bag, but y'all really know what it's gonna take. Trying to figure out how to start now Blue gels, about to show you the way Cause we top finance and amortizing And anything it takes to get real estate We've been grinding all day Finding ways to get paid Better hop on this wave Cause we're dropping blue gems JB dropping blue gems AG dropping blue gems New podcast, baby, tune in we in this thing dropping blue gems. Let's go. Another Let's go. episode of Blue Gems podcast with Jeff Brown from Loma Homes. What a pleasure to have you, man. Let's kind of just dive in and learn a little bit about you. Yeah. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to uh, be on your podcast. I come from the tech background, actually. I worked for a tech startup for six years before this gig, doing a lot of data and analytics. The company I worked for was in data analytics for e-commerce. So helping people sell more on Amazon and that kind of thing. So my background is in heavy data, heavy analytics, always had a passion for real estate. And three or four years ago, decided to buy my first Airbnb, did that in a place called Joshua Tree, California. At the time, it was like no one had ever even heard of it. It's kind of a off the path. You know, when I told people it was in Joshua Tree. They had no idea what I was talking about. And everyone thought I was crazy for doing that. But it worked out really well. We sold that. 2020 and reinvested in Orlando. That's when I met Kyle and Brindy were the ones that actually flipped to my first home in Joshua Tree. They're my partners and they did such a great job. We decided to make it a full-time gig and partner up and do it. We're now in Florida and have 14, almost 15 properties and just growing as quick as we can. Love it. So I, I'm interested because I'm not a data guy at all. I try to be, but I, I can't. <laughs> How did you go about finding Joshua Tree before everything? Like I had imagined that you'd have to like research a lot of different markets to come to this conclusion. So can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah. I mean, at the time I was still building out kind of my research processes, if you will. I just went on AirDNA. I was just Googling as much as I could and AirDNA kept popping up in my search results and they had some some free blog articles that were showing really the numbers that I was looking for, which is profit potential. They call it investability. I was using those numbers to say, okay, what is, where is the most revenue for the cheapest house? Joshua Tree kept coming up and it was in my budget at the time. Homes were just crazy cheap. I just remember like five acres of land being like 10 or 20 grand at the time. Like it was just like crazy, oh crazy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And this was only like four or five years ago. Um, yeah, that's wild. And so, yeah, I was like, you know what? And I did, did some numbers, did some research, and I was like, okay, best properties have a pool, best properties are doing this, they're kind of remote. And so I just put it together and uh, had Kyle and Brindy flip like this really cool bohemian vibe dome house for me out there and cash flowed well. So what are you using to source your data? You know, you mentioned you were doing so much research. What were some of the platforms that you were using at the time? At the time, it was just AirDNA. That's really all I had to go off of. Eventually, you know, Price Labs came out with their market dashboard. We use Price Labs now. We use AirDNA for some of like the high level stuff and just kind of picking general markets. But then we kind of dive deeper with Price Labs. We, we use just some of our own research and data. When we look at the platforms, we look at Airbnb specifically and, and try to confirm the numbers just with our own research as well. We learned from that. 
Yeah, we've seen a lot of variances between AirDNA and then when you actually go on Airbnb, trying to tie back the ADRs, you know, they're not always going to be the same. So I was curious what your process was looking like there as well. Yeah, it's tricky because especially if you're in like Orlando, for example, where there's a lot of property management companies, um, a lot of what these listings are doing is they're listing on Airbnb, but they're raising the price into something that's really not what they're booking at because they just they don't want to deal with Airbnb, but they've heard they have to be on Airbnb. And so they just they list and they put the price way high. And then they actually book it on, you know, from their property management company that are paying a huge commission for and it blocks off the calendar. So AirDNA looks at that and says, oh, ADR was $900 a night and it's booked. So that's revenue. But really, they didn't book it on Airbnb. They booked it on somewhere else that charged a lot less. And so you can see some of that. Or if you have like nested listings, they way overestimate the for nested listings. And that's just the nature of scraping for data. You just have to just take it for face value and make a lot of assumptions on what kind of revenue people are actually making. Can you define a nested listing for the rookies out there? So a nested listing is when you have two separate listings that can be listed either separately or together, two or more. So for example, if you've got a duplex and each one is two bedrooms, you can list two separate two-bedroom listings and then you can create a third listing for a four-bedroom home. When you book either one of the two separate units, it will block off the calendar of your combined unit. That can lead you to believe that the combined unit is getting booked a ton when in reality, it's the two separate units that are getting booked for separately and that's blocking off the other calendar. And then what are your tips and tricks for seasonality? In Florida, we're kind of lucky in that, you know, there's some downturns, but it's not super drastic. One thing that I've found in some of the mountain towns, maybe even Joshua Tree, if you pull up a listing in, let's say, you know, November, December, the ADR is going to be super high. But then you go to the summer and it's going to be averaging a lot lower. So how do you determine, you know, an annual gross revenue for a listing like that? It's a really good question. We use Price Labs for that. Price Labs seems to have a better revenue estimate for bedroom sizes. So, for example, you can go into their market dashboards, pay like 10 bucks a month, and you can pull average revenue by month. So, you really need to estimate revenue on a full year. If you just look at Airbnb and try to look at their calendars, you're only going to be looking at maybe one season. You're going to get an idea of what it looks like in the next two to three months. But people don't typically book more than that or farther out than that. And that's why you need to look at a historical average of Price Labs or AirDNA. I prefer Price Labs. They already picked your market. You kind of get a little bit closer and you can use Price Labs for that. I wanted to pivot just a little bit only because I'm personally interested and obviously you don't have to share this, but are there some markets that you're pretty excited about or that you're seeing some numbers that are trending upwards that you could share with the audience? Right now, we're looking at the Poconos. In terms of the numbers, the short term, that actually looks pretty negative. What we see if you look at the last three or four years is that there's a number of markets that saw a huge spike during the pandemic. So beach towns and cabin towns, you know, just mountain areas saw just an enormous spike for 2020, 2021. It was just gangbusters for everybody. 2022 is normalizing. So you'll see that come down pretty significantly. So if you're you're comparing 2022 to 2021, Poconos does not look good. But when you take a broader perspective and you look at 2019, Considering that to be the pre-pandemic year, um, we're actually seeing numbers significantly higher than 2019. And we think that the long term of Airbnb and the short term rental market is strong. So we like that the Poconos has 
some ski resorts and some things to offset because we have a beach town. We're on the Gulf Coast with uh, Destin and Panama City Beach. So we're looking to kind of offset some of that down season revenue with with the Poconos and those types of uh, locations. So right now we're investing in Poconos. We've looked at Biloxi, Mississippi. We've looked at, I think, it's some other areas we like, but those are the ones that we're focusing on at the moment. Biloxi. Yeah. Explain that one. I wouldn't. I wouldn't imagine there's a lot of travelers there, but you know, sometimes you don't really. Yeah, (laughs) sometimes you don't really need to be known, just like Joshua Tree four years ago, right? Yeah, it's so funny. Right as we were investing in Destin, people were like, "So where, you know, where are you buying homes these days?" And I was like, "Oh, Destin." And they're like, "It's so funny you say that." Like, I'd never even heard of Destin until you told me about it that one time, and now everybody's telling me they're going to Destin to retreat. There's something I I don't know what the cause and effect is, but every time we pick a location like. Joshua Tree, it just blew up. And then we picked Destin and then it blew up. And then we picked you know, Orlando, did the same thing. I think it's just the the profit opportunity that's there. And people are flood. They, they find a pocket of profit and then they flood in. And we just happen to be like a year ahead of it. And so we jump in before everybody else does. The real estate values go crazy. And then we, we're, we're good. So that's how it works for us, I guess. <laughs> the market whisperer. If we are, then we'll see what happens with Poconos. Maybe it'll just take. But um, <laughs> we're three for three so far. As you're moving into a new market, you know, you have to determine which properties are going to be most profitable. So how are you running your pro forma at a high level? What are some things that you're looking for right off the bat? We use what we call the 20% rule. And I tell this to everybody, but because we have investors, we have a lot of returns that we have to hit in order to make our cash flows and everything. We, We have a higher profit threshold than I'd say the average Airbnb investor would have. And the 20% rule is really simple. It's just we need to make sure that if we're buying a house that it can make at least 20% revenue, 20% an annual revenue of that purchase price. So let's say if it's a 500 grand home, that home needs to make bring in about 100 grand in revenue for it to be worth it for us. And that's kind of where we where we set our threshold. And then in determining revenue, I'm sure you're looking at comps. So one of the challenges, I think, with short-term rentals is figuring out what is a good comp. In a long-term rental, you know, a three-bed, two-bath will probably rent for, let's say, $1,800 in a given market. And it's not really going to fluctuate too much. But in short-term rentals, because of amenities, I feel there's a lot of fluctuation between two similar properties. So have you found any trends in terms of figuring out what a good comp would be in terms of certain amenities? We've determined what works for us in terms of where we fit in the market. We buy our homes and renovate them from the ground up. And so our homes are typically some of the nicer homes on the market. So we place, if we have, say, a bell curve, we typically fit in the 75th to 90th percentile of that bell curve. We try to be above 90th percentile. And and in Orlando, I think we do that in more like beachy areas. It's a little bit harder to distinguish yourself. We try to be in that 75th percentile. For the listeners out there and trying to peg where you fit, I think it's always safe to peg yourself in the 50th percentile. And then the rest is upside. I think anyone who takes this business seriously and makes an intentional effort to optimize their listings and to be strategic about this should be in the 75th percentile. You know, just as a safe side, I recommend starting with 50th. And then if the numbers work there, then you can move forward and then take the rest as just extra. Yeah, great point. I mean, guest experience is so important. Operations, so important. I mean, if you, again, going back to the long-term rental example, your property management company is not really going to impact the gross rent too much. 
But if you're a super host, if you're five-star reviews consistently, I mean, you're going to slowly get that revenue higher. So love to look at it that way. So a lot of our audience or listeners, because we are in Orlando, we have a pretty loyal fan base or listeners from Orlando, like to talk about your Disney properties a little bit. What's your team look like that on the ground? You know, what's your maintenance team, handyman, all that good stuff. And do you have any, I would say, permanent positions or are they all kind of you outsource them with other companies that are already existing? So we have four properties in Champions Gate. For us, four isn't quite enough to put dedicated boots on the ground. It's hard to afford a full-time salary person when you only have four properties. I think you start to hit that closer to nine or 10 properties, maybe even 12, where you can hire a full-time person to just be your property manager. We don't hire property management in the sense of we don't give away a 20, 25, 30% commission. We hire a cleaning company and then we hire an inspector. And it's really important for us to have two separate independent companies or individuals that do both of those tasks. We use Breezeway to manage our operations. And then what we do is the cleaning company goes in and does their work. They mark off their tasks or whatever it is. And we try to keep those really minimal. And then the inspector comes in with a very, very fine tooth comb and for every inspector, for every clean, and make sure that the cleaner did their job. That two-step process has worked really well for us in terms of making sure those cleanings are done right. And for those cleans, we pay someone per inspection or a per clean rate. You know, if it's a 25 or 30 or even $50 you pay per inspection, um, it's a pretty good rate per hour. I mean, they go in for an hour, they take pictures of everything, they inspect everything, they make sure everything is ready for the guest, and we pay about 50 bucks for that. And then that person also tends to be a house call in person where if they need to go and drop off more paper towels or they need to do, you know, go visit the home and give the guest something, then we have like a per visit type feed for that as well. I mean, if we're kind of outlining our operations in Orlando and how we do that, I'd say that that's how we have thought about it for all of our locations. And then for maintenance and handyman, you always got to have at least one primary handyman. And then you have to have a list of specialists, you know, AC techs and plumbers and, and everything that you reach out to if you know, and they have to be 24 hour service specialists that you can reach out to if you have to. But then having one, if not two or three maintenance people as backups, just in case you needed to send somebody there quick and your, your first choice is busy, it's good to have those. So that's our operations. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the inspector. Does he go out after every single turn or is a calendar? How's that work? Yeah, after every turn. They are to arrive after the cleaning is completed, but before the guest arrives. So it's really like a 30 minute to one hour window that they have to be there. And like I said, the the checklist for them is pretty long. It's very detailed and they have to take pictures of, of everything. That helps us document the property well so that when the guest, if the guest tries to complain about something that's not true, we've got pictures of it. We just make sure that the cleaners didn't leave something obvious that the inspector can fix before the guest arrives. Now, does the inspector then relay it to the maintenance or do, does he relay it to you guys? How's that that work? So it gets reported in Breezeway. And then if it's something that is like a recurring issue or something that needs to be corrected, they will report that to us and then we can fix it with the cleaning team. Explain Breezeway because I, I don't even know that I've heard of this before. I'm interested. It's a great software for the 
turnover management. What you can do is you can assign cleaners and inspectors and managers. It's got all the different roles in there. You can set it up so that it will automatically let people know when a turn is ready and then they can select that they've completed the clean and then it moves into the next phase and then it lets the inspector know that it's ready. It manages all of the back and forth with the turnovers as well as provides a place for all those pictures to be uploaded. So there's a reporting on those cleans as well. We can also submit tickets for maintenance. So when the inspector goes and they see anything wrong, they can take a picture of something, assign it to the maintenance person, and that automatically sends them a note saying, hey, this needs to be done. And you can put timelines on it and you can see you know, what maintenance tasks need to be done. So you have a kind of a, a one-stop shop for all of the tickets and maintenance as well. That's convenient. Very cool. It's been super good for us. We are thrilled to announce Blue Gems Management. After building out 24 short-term rental properties of our own, we're now helping other investors buy their time back. With over 300 five-star reviews, we really understand the importance of guest experience. If you're interested in making short-term rentals passive, click the link in the show notes below and someone from our team will contact you soon. Now back to the show. Sounds amazing. I think the first counterpoint people would have is just the cost, right? So are you working that into your numbers? You're going to have, you know, a certain OPEX margin of, let's say, 5 to 10%, you know, just to run your properties? We run it in two separate companies. We've got the property, the asset management or the asset ownership company and the property management. So Loma Homes is a property manager of those properties and we pay ourselves for that. And then Loma Homes covers that fee. So we don't actually charge Breezeway's subscription to the owner of the home, meaning the asset holder of the home. Loma Homes covers a lot of the software that we use to manage the properties, if that makes sense. So you take a percentage of gross and then you work your cost into that number, essentially? Yeah. Yeah, because I think one of the challenges that could come up is, you know, typically the cleaning fee would be passed on to the guests, right? But if you're having an additional fee on top, you know, that might be an actual expense that the owner would then have to cover. Those are pass-through expenses. So they do show up on their PL as both a revenue and uh, an expense. So it comes out on their side. We did talk about looking at new markets and returns, but I was curious, you know, just high-level numbers on your target returns that you're looking for when moving into a new property or market. So when we put our investor deck together, we aim for about an 8% cash on cash for the investor, 18 to 19% IRR, meaning after five years, the time value of the return is about, it comes out to about an 18% called annualized return after the, the liquidation event. We put that together before we knew what would really happen. I mean, we threw our fund together and you know we ran the numbers the best we could, but the reality is I think we're probably overshooting that. We're probably hitting it from a cash flow perspective, but when it comes to the, the real estate value and being able to create cash flow assets, those assets increase in value pretty dramatically when you wrap a business around them and turn them into assets that you can sell to like a, an institutional investor, for example. Because institutional investors are used to much lower returns. And so when you hand them a short-term rental portfolio, sell it at a cap rate, for example, you can increase the value of, the, of those assets. I would say that if we were to sell today, we would probably double our investors' money in about two years, which is not... I mean, that's probably oh, more than we would expect. I mean, it's far more than we expected, but that's really where the, the upside potential is. 
in this type of uh, investment. And then in this asset class, you know, one of the challenges that we've seen is it's, it's still classified as residential, right? So the property typically will be valued based upon the comps in the neighborhood. But we know it really should be based on the NOI because it is truly an investment property. So I was curious what you guys have seen in terms of that. Are you having people needing to pay cash to potentially buy your properties or how does that look? So I've seen I've seen two things. I've seen people sell properties at an NOI that's much more common in a place like Orlando where short-term rentals are so common and so big that people get it there. If you're trying to sell a vacation rental at an NOI value in a smaller area where people don't really understand the market as well, you're going to have a very tough time because what you run into is the problem of the appraisal. And and when somebody goes to buy the property, they're going to send a, somebody an appraiser in and they're only going to land on a percentage of whatever that appraiser comes up with. Well, that appraiser is not going to look at your NOI. They're going to look at the comps in the neighborhood like you just mentioned. What you have to do if you want to sell a single property at an NOI value and that person is getting a bank loan, then you have to sell the property value separate from the business value and the buyer would have to pay cash for the business value. They're not going to get any bank loan for that. So it's a lot tougher. I mean, if you're going to sell a single property at an NOI, that's it's hard. But if you're going to buy 10 or 15 homes and your check size is bigger, now you're going to attract a whole different buyer. You're going to attract a buyer that is an institutional investor and they value homes at NOI. So they look at bundles of homes at NOI. And that's the trick. You see, once you get big enough, then you can change your valuation and sell it on a cap rate. So have you had experience in doing one single home thus far? Because you mentioned separating the business value, which I think is very interesting. So we have talked to realtors that focus and specialize on this kind of thing. We've not sold any individual homes at an NOI. We have had people or institutions approach us about buying our portfolio at an ACAP. And I can explain wow. cap rates if you want. Yeah, that'd be great. A lot of rookies. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. So a cap rate is how the traditional real estate world compares investment opportunities. So to put it simply, if I'm going to buy a home at a hundred grand and it has a profit of 10 grand a year, that is a NOI is profit or net operating income. So that net operating income is all the operational costs and it does not include mortgage. But if it had, its profit is 10 grand and you're going to buy it for 100 grand, then you have a 10 cap or a 10% cap rate. What we're saying then is if we wanted to sell a million dollar home, I'm sorry, yeah, at an eight cap, then its operating margin would need to be about 80 grand. Yep. It should be about 80 grand a year. When you change the valuation of these properties on a, on a short-term rental, you get a lot more profit than a long-term rental. And so you're, you're increasing the value of your property significantly if you buy a portfolio and sell them at a different, different valuation. Makes a lot of sense. It's a great strategy. Yeah, so as I've mentioned a few times already, a lot of, uh, a lot of newbies listening uh, on, on the show. So what would be your advice for someone just looking to get started in the Airbnb short-term rental game? If you're looking to just get started, you could do what I did, which I'd recommend you can buy a second home with like a 10% down vacation home loan. That just reduces your numerator, I guess, your purchase price, right? Your risk and buy a home that this is the trick. I mean, you want to test it and make sure it's right for you because I think most people get into the market and realize how much work it is. And they think it's going to be a passive investment and short-term rentals are not passive. I would say 
find a way to test this out for yourself. Whether you want to be a co-host on someone else's account or get a 10% down loan and buy a property and do it yourself, you can always scale your business, but you can never really get away from guests. Even if you hire people to do things, like you're still going to need to put out fires and you're going to be the escalation point at least. I think you need to make sure that you have the temperament to handle entitled guests. And if you can do that, then I think it's, it's right for you. But this is not passive and it requires the right kind of personality. And then what does a day in the life look like for Jeff Brown? A day in the life of Jeff Brown involves a lot of management. So making sure that my team is on task with guests management, making sure that our systems and our processes are working so that guests are happy uh, reviewing our customer reviews. And then I spend a lot of time fundraising to, to grow our to grow our business and making sure the capital is flowing in that way and doing research in more markets and finding numbers on homes, things like that. If you could leave one last blue gem for the listeners, it could be around real estate. It could be around cap rates. It could be around short-term rentals. It could be around life in general. What would you want to leave the listeners? Real estate is the most consistent wealth builder out there. Whether or not you do short-term rentals, get your feet in real estate and be in it for the long term. I done a lot of research, done a lot of numbers, and there are very few more tried and true trusted ways to build wealth. Get into real estate one way or the other, hold some equity and hold it long term and you'll be fine. And uh, Jeff, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me online. You can go to our website at www.loma-homes.com uh, or you can email me directly at jeff, J-E-F-F, at loma-homes.com. Awesome. Thank Amazing. you so much for your time, you, man. Great episode. Really appreciate it. If you're interested in scaling your short-term rental portfolio and networking with like-minded individuals, we host a short-term rental meetup once a month in downtown Orlando. Click our link below in the show notes to register. See you at the next one. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems.